You can open up your Bible uh, to the book of Colossians chapter 3. If you're newer to our church, usually we go through a book of the Bible, uh, one text at a time and just slowly work through it. We've been doing something a little bit different the last several weeks, which I'll tell you about here in a moment. So that's uh, why you may enter in some Sundays uh, during the stretch and not know exactly what text we're going to be in. But we're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning here in a few moments. Uh, Before we uh, turn specifically to the Word, I wanted to share... Uh, a few things. One, I wanted to say publicly, I did this online, but wanted to say while we're gathered together, a public thank you to Marcos. Uh, last weekend when we knew that, Marcos is who was just playing guitar here, uh, last weekend when we knew it may snow and may uh, prohibit us from being able to gather together, uh, me and him were texting during the day, and he and I came in really late at night on Saturday before the snow got really bad uh, and recorded music and preaching and whatnot so that we could have that ready if we needed to cancel uh, to be able to share with you all, and hopefully you all got to benefit from that uh, in your homes, your apartments, wherever you were gathered. Um, but I wanted to publicly say thank you to him. Sometimes he does many things that you might not see or know about, uh, but I'm grateful for him and uh, his service of our, our church in that way. The other thing I wanted to say before we uh, turn more to the word is, as you came in, if you're in the room, we have some tables, and there's a sign right in the middle at the back uh, that says, help us finish the Tooney Trailhead. I want to just briefly explain what that is and what that's about and invite you into an opportunity to be generous towards finishing this project. Uh, so the town of Winona Lake, uh, numerous months ago, let us know that they're wanting to extend the Greenway uh, out this direction, uh, out eastward into, t- into Winona Lake and the, some of the neighborhoods that are going to be even popping up this direction uh, in the months and years ahead. And we had already been as a church thinking about building a playground area. And when we heard that they were going to be extending that, we thought, hey, let's really do this nice. Let's make a nice playground, a pavilion, make it a trailhead uh, that the community could use, that we could use as a church but that the community can use as well and so you've probably seen that we've been the last numerous months before it was getting cold started constructing that pavilion uh, looks beautiful there's all the concrete work that's done the playground equipment's there uh, but there's still a few things that we're needing to do uh, to complete the project like put some surfacing on that circular playground area uh, to get some picnic tables to put a couple signs up uh, as people enter from either direction into the trailhead area and we've been able to pay for everything thing that's already out there just from your generosity of what you gave into our general fund as a church the last couple years you all have been and continue to be extremely generous in that way Um, but we still have a gap of cost to pay for what remains and we want to invite you into that and to give you an opportunity to give more directly to those things uh, to help fund those signs and picnic tables and the the playground grass the turf even that we're going to give there and so there's some flyers at the back of the auditorium or there's information on our website also at christcovenant.org forward slash trail about uh, how you can donate and even some suggestions of how much you could donate. Like if you'd like to donate as for a square foot of turf, for example, it'd be $15. And if you want to multiply it out by however many you'd like to donate, uh, we would love to have you do that. There's directions on those flyers or on the website about how you can donate toward that end. But I am so excited to name it the Tooney Trailhead. And I see JT in the back corner. John, I am proud that we're naming this after your dad, uh, Ed Tooney, who is a member of our church for decades. And so faithfully served the children of our church, especially the families of our church. He went to be with the Lord uh, a year or two ago. Uh, 
but we're excited to name this after him and his honor to, because he really embodied what our church says all the time that we want to reach the generations with the gospel of Christ. Ed was all about that and I'm sure in heaven he is still celebratory of what we're seeking to do as a church family. So uh, we're proud to name that in his honor and would encourage you over the next couple Sundays to think about how you might be able to be part of helping finish that trailhead so we can have it operative as soon as possible as the weather warms up. That said, I want to turn to the Word of God. Uh, we're going to read Colossians 3 here in just a moment. And what we've been doing the last several weeks is we've been going through a series of sermons that we call Wayposts. Uh, we started this five weeks, four or five weeks ago. We've been thinking about the, the development of a child from infancy to adulthood as a spiritual trail of sorts, as one that they're going to go down, one that we've already gone down in many ways as uh, grown-ups or as people who are further along the path than them. And we, we've been thinking of certain turns along the way. When you go on a trail, sometimes there's big turns you need to make, and you might not know which way to turn. What a waypost is is one of those wooden signs uh, that is there to help you know which way to turn. And so we've been thinking through the progression of a child's life, what are some of the turns that they need to make, that we can help them make, that we can identify for them. And I'm not going to recap all those. We're going to create some resources within the next several weeks that could help you latch on to some of these and remember what they are. But I, I'll just encourage you, if you would like to look back on those, uh, to listen to those sermons. Uh, but the most recent one that we talked about last Sunday, if you were able to watch the video that we shared online, was as we started to think about early adolescence, so like middle school years. We, we use the word internalization uh, for that waypost, that, that sign, because we saw that though children have grown up around the people of God and heard the word of God forever, there comes a point in their life where they need to internalize that, where they need to say, I believe this, not just because dad told me to or grandma told me to, but because I truly believe this good news. I truly trust this savior. That's what we talked about last Sunday. This Sunday, as we think a little bit further on in the progression of a child and think maybe of those early high school years, if you want to use our, our culture's uh, frame of reference, the, the middle adolescence years, uh, the word we're going to use for this way post is identity, identity. And identity is a huge part of adolescence, isn't it? For those of us who have lived through it or maybe in the midst of it, if you read any sort of writing at all about adolescence, about the, the progression from childhood to adulthood, the word identity is going to appear in those writings over and over and over and over again because it's such a core part of what a young person is trying to sort through and figure out. They're trying to, in many ways, just answer the basic question, who am I? And there, there's many psychologists who refer to this as an identity crisis, where you're starting to figure out, okay, I'm, I'm much more aware as I enter into this stage of life, I'm much more aware of my family history, I'm much more aware of my ethnicity, I'm much more aware of my economic position in the world, I'm much more aware of my physical abilities, my athletic abilities or lack thereof. I'm much more aware of my intellectual capacities, either that I have or that I lack. I'm very aware socially, like who I'm friends with and how I fit in or how I don't fit in. And many people will talk about these years as a time to form an identity, a time to explore identities, a time to establish identity for a young person. And they're trying, like I said, to answer this fundamental question, who am I? And I, I want to turn to this text in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 because I think it gives us an answer to that question. 
That if a child has come to that, like we talked about last week, uh, if they've come to that point in the trail where there's this fork in the trail and they have to decide, do I believe this or do I not? Do I trust in this Savior or do I not? If they do indeed place their trust in Christ and turn from their sin, this is going to be a hugely significant area for them to grow in, to learn their identity as someone who's united with Jesus. To see that as the overarching, the underlying identity of who they are. To see it as the core of who they are. That's far more important than any of those other things. And this text, amongst many others, speaks to this very thing. And so I want to read this for you, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. This is from a letter that a man named Paul, who was one of Jesus' apostles, uh, that he sent out. Uh, One of the letters that he wrote to this church, this church that he had helped establish in a city of Colossae. That's the name, Colossians and he's writing to them and this text is like a this verses even are kind of like a hinge point even within this letter to do as a Christian but as he's turning this corner this text that we're going to read he really takes a moment to really hone in on their identity who they are as he's transitioning from these statements about Jesus to these statements about how to live he's really going to hone in on their identity in Christ so follow along with me Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this to this early church. He said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of God. This text was not just one that was important for these ancient Colossians to learn. It's something that's important uh, for even young people or older people today to read. And I, I would summarize the core message that I think this text speaks and that we could try to convey then to believing teenagers, to those who put their faith in Jesus would be this, is that knowing who you are is essential to living as you ought. Knowing who you are is essential to living as as you ought. And so I want to go through this text using those two headings, knowing who you are, living as you ought, and try to help you see what the identity is that Paul is reminding these people that they've been given, this new identity, and then help you see and hopefully help us see those young believers communicate to them that what relevance that identity has for how they live. As Christians, it's not just some story they believe that's just of these abstract ideas, but it actually has relevance to the way that they live their very life. So knowing who you are is essential to living as you ought. I want to show you first under the heading of knowing who you are, a few things that Paul says in this text. And he says it elsewhere in the New Testament many times. This is just one example of where he says these things. And we often, we underestimate the significance of what takes place in a person at conversion, I think. We way underestimate the significance of what takes place when a person turns from their sin and places their trust in Christ. We, we sometimes sell God short on the power that he has worked in that person's life. I want to point out to you here in this text the magnitude of what Paul says has happened. If a person has, has placed their faith in Christ, if they've been uh, repentant, if they've heard the good news and put their trust in Jesus, note a couple of things Paul says even in this short little paragraph here uh, of what has taken place in their life. 
He says in verse 1, he says, you have been raised with Christ. That's quite a statement. You have been raised with Christ. And then in verse 3, he says, you have died. Which may sound very morbid, but he's making these two grand statements. You have died and you have been raised with Christ. Those are not just throwaway comments to make. Those are huge statements that Paul makes here and he makes them over and over again. And Paul here in this text, he describes the life of a Christian. If you have placed your faith in Christ, he would describe your life this way as one that has become intimately tied with Jesus. Not that you just believe certain things about him in some abstract way, but he speaks of your life as being intimately tied with Jesus himself. There's a a phrase that people use, theologians use a lot, that I actually find increasingly helpful the older I get. They use this phrase they call union with Christ. When what they're trying to convey in that is the binding of what happens with a person who used to be an enemy of God, who now turns from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus, that there is this binding of them together, binding of us together with Jesus. This linking of us that can never be torn apart. And the link is so tight that, G, that Paul can write to these people and say, you have died. You have been raised. Not just Christ has died and Christ has been raised. He says, you have. Like your old self has died. The sinful self that you were that entered into this world is dead and gone. That at the cross, as Jesus died, so did your old self. And when Christ was laid in a tomb, so was your old self. Your old sinful, rebellious self was crucified, was laid in a tomb. And not only that, but when Christ was raised from the dead, your new life began then as well. That Sunday morning when God the Father breathed life back into Jesus, your eternal life began as well. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you are so bound with Jesus that you have died with him, you've been raised with him. And so may we, as we think of ourselves as parents, as we think of ourselves as grandparents, as disciples of young people, or really of anybody, even if they're older, may we never, ever, ever think that all we are trying to see happen in their life is that they make some decision or they say some prayer, like at a conference or at an altar call or something, and then nothing else happens, nothing else changes in their life. Sometimes that's all we're angling for, is I'm trying to get to my child to a point where they'll say a prayer, where they, where they will say something to indicate that they've placed their faith in Christ, and then we feel like, oh, whew, like, thank God that is over. Like, that they have been uh, forgiven, that they've been, uh, that they've been born again. And that's all that we think is happening sometimes. That there's been this transaction where, where I've said, they've said a prayer, now God's given forgiveness. And we don't think at all about, no, if that's taken place, my child has been linked with Jesus. My child has been bound with Jesus. Their life is now tied up in him. Believing the gospel is not, a get, not merely a get out of hell free card. I think sometimes we think of it that way. If we just say the right words and we're sincere as we say it, then, man, hell is removed from us. It's not looming over us anymore. 
That is true, but there is way more that happens when a person places their faith in Christ. They are bound together with him. They, faith binds us together with Christ. The Spirit of God binds us together with the Son of God. I was thinking of this. Some of us, when we have children, we like to imagine their future and we imagine things. We may imagine our child's wedding someday. We would never, if we're imagining the wedding of our child, imagine that, man, the wedding is going to be wonderful and really great and they're going to declare their love for each other and then we're never going to talk to their new wife again. Right? Or that we're never going to see their husband again, right? When, when a wedding happens, there is a binding of two people together. It's not just an event that takes place and they go their separate ways. It is the start of something. It's the binding of people together. And the same is true when a person comes to faith in Christ. That it's not just some transaction, some deal that's made and then we go our separate ways. It is a merging of us with Christ, a binding of us with Jesus. That's what's taking place. I love the song that we sing at times called Yet Not I. There's a line in that song that says, To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. And then the lyric says this, For my life is wholly bound to his. That is true. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you have spiritual life, it's because you have been linked with Jesus once and for all. You've been made one with him. That is your identity. And it's very tempting for human beings, and I would say it's especially tempting for teenagers to try to establish their identity in all sorts of other places. And to try to find their significance, their footing, and all sorts of other ways than first and foremost seeing their binding together with Jesus. Some of us have lived through this. But we, we, are, we are tempted, especially in adolescence, to find our identity in the relationships that we have. Like, who's my friend? Who thinks highly of me? What boy or girl is interested in me? We think of our identity in terms of our intellect, our grades. Like, what's my GPA? Am I keeping that high enough or not? We think of it in terms of how much money we have or our family has or how much we don't. We start to identify ourselves in those categories. We think of the clothes that we wear. Do, am I able to have the, the name brand things that I would like to have or do I need to get the cheaper things or the hand-me-downs? We identify by the music that we like, the movies that we watch. We identify by our hobbies, the things that we are entertained by, that we enjoy. We find our identity in all of those things or tempted to at least find our identity in all those things and not in Christ. We even, as young people, and adults do this too, do not get me wrong, but we can often try to have different identities among different groups of people. Or when I'm amongst these people, I try to present myself this way, and I, I kind of own this identity. And then when I'm with these people, I have this identity, like we're kind of these chameleons who don't really know who we are. And so we're just trying to scramble to fit in with the people that we're around. And it's like we are trying to establish an identity. We're trying to forge an identity. But I want us to know from the Word of God that we do not just discover who we are. We don't establish who we are. We don't, uh, we don't determine our identity as if it's for us to figure out. We are given an identity. Like we receive an identity. An identity is given to us. 
We don't have to scramble to find it. If we've placed our faith in Christ, an identity is given to you, and it is a good identity. Like, there is no identity that you could ever take on or find that's better than being united with Jesus, than being bound with him, becoming one with him. That is the most amazing identity that you could ever receive. And that identity of being one with Jesus is for the Christian, is supposed to be the core identity that you have. Like I said earlier, that's above all your other identities. That's below all your other identities. The core identity that you are to hold is that you are united with Christ. That you have died with him, you've been raised with him. That is your identity. You are one with him. And whether teenagers realize it or not, whether grown-ups realize it or not, that is the identity we are looking for. That's the identity that we truly need, is that stable identity of being one with Jesus. Because every other thing, think about this, every other thing you try to find your identity in and establish yourself as is inherently unstable. If you think your identity is just, I am the brainiac, what happens when you get like me and you get into... AP physics and stuff like that, and you stink at it. Like your identity is just going to crumble. What happens if you find your identity in your athletic ability and you get up into higher levels of athletics and you can't compete anymore? Or you have an injury that keeps you from performing? What happens if you find your identity in the, the clothes that you can wear because mom and dad buy that for you, but then when you get into adulthood, you don't have the money to buy those things anymore? What happens when you find your identity and being loved by this other person and giving your heart to them and then they decide to leave you? Every other thing anyone tries to establish their identity around is inherently unstable. But with Christ, you have the most stable of all identities. You have an identity that will never change, that can never change. You can actually have assurance now and forever that you are loved by God himself. You are one with him. The issue of assurance is a huge issue for young people, isn't it? We feel this angst sometimes spiritually even of, am I really forgiven? Am I really born again? We feel this angst. But Paul wants them to know that they can have assurance of salvation, not because they're these godly pinnacles of virtue and, hey, they've sorted all this stuff out in their life, but because they're united with Jesus. Because they are linked with him. And he is, in this text, he is seated at the right hand of God. He's not going anywhere. Like he has gained the approval of God the Father for us. And his death on the cross and his resurrection. And Paul's saying, you are there. Like you have been gained that standing with God. Now and for forever, because of the work Christ has done for you. He says your life, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I would call anyone in the room today who, whether you are a teenager, whether you are a 65-year-old, if you are one who is seeking to establish your identity, find your identity in anything other than the work of Jesus and you being united with him, I call you today to give up placing your identity, finding your identity in all those other things because they can and eventually they will dissolve. But if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you will receive this identity that cannot be shaken. And it's far better than being rich or being attracted. can be made a a son or daughter of God, right? You who are a citizen of this earth can now become a citizen of heaven. 
Not because you are good, but because Christ has died in your place on the cross and been raised for you. May you receive that new identity today. And may we, as disciples, as parents, may we help young people, if they have placed their trust in Christ, if they have turned from their sin, may we help them over and over and over again to remember this identity that they've been given that they've been linked with Jesus, that they are one with him right now. We need to remind them because it is so easy for us to forget, right? I I love this phrase that he says in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ and God. And one way that helps us remember the security of what we've been been given, what we've gained, that that it's hidden in heaven with God. He's not moving, we're not moving. But it's also hidden, right? Christ is in heaven. He, he's not physically around us, so it's easy, out of sight, out of mind at times to forget. I am united with Jesus. Like, I am bound with him, the one who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We have to be told that. I have to be told that over and over and over again. And especially new believing teenagers need to hear that over and over and over again. I was thinking about people, hopefully, Lord willing, I don't ever have to be put in witness protection program and get a new identity. Hopefully none of you have had that or will ever happen. But I was trying to imagine, if you really had to receive a new identity and be moved somewhere else, how confusing would that be? How many times? It's not as if they just hand you a piece of paper and say, hey, here's your new name, here's your new life. And then you're just like, okay, got it. And then you just roll, like you roll with that. You'd have to be pulling that paper out constantly, right? Remember, okay, what, who am I? Like, what am I? What is my job? What's my backstory? Like, we don't just turn on a dime as far as identity. We have to be reminded over and over again of that. And the same's true if we're united with Jesus. We need other people to help us remember, your old self is dead and you've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. We have to help them remember that. We need to remind them that over and over again. So, we are to know our identity and help others know their identity in Christ from this text. But like I said, I also want to point out from this text how we are to live in light of that identity. That, that knowing who we are is essential to living as we are. And Paul gets at this in this text and even the verses that follow. This idea of living as you ought. The connection is clear even in verses 1 and 2, right? He says, if this is true, if then you've been raised with Christ. In verse 3, he talks about how you have died with Christ. He says, if this is true, seek the things that are above. Verse 1. And then verse 2, again, he's saying, if this is true, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So there's this connection in Paul's mind that he's trying to convey to us that If this identity shift has happened in you, then it's going to affect, it has to affect the way that you live. If you're going to actually live life the right way that God calls you to live, it's essential that you know your identity. And this becomes increasingly clear. If we had more time, I would show you in depth this. But if you look at the verses even that follow, verses 5 and following, like I said, it's a corner Paul's turning in this letter where he's going to give them some directions about how to live. I'm not going to get into all the weeds of the the directions he gives, but I want to point out a couple of the reasons he says to do these things or to not do these things, right? So look at verse 5. He's just been talking about their identity. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, right? So he, he tells them then these things that they're to get rid of in their life, 
But that therefore is pointing back to their identity in Jesus. The fact that they've been linked with him, that they've died with him and been raised with him, saying, remember that, and because of that, stop doing this stuff. Stop living this way. That's the old self. That's the one that has been put to death. Stop living that way. Like, live as the person God has made you into now. So that, therefore, is important for us. And then drop your eyes down to verse 12. So after, in that first paragraph, he's told them stuff to stop doing. Verse 12, he's going to tell them things to start doing. Stuff to put on, like they're putting on clothes. But note how he says it. He doesn't just say, put on this and this and this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Then he tells them what to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's telling them, not just put this stuff on, like put these clothes. He's saying, put them on because you are God's chosen ones. You are holy and beloved by him. You've been made into these sons and daughters of God. Remember your identity and start doing these things. Start living this way. And I so appreciate this, and it's so important for young people who are new to the faith, who are recently converted, because a lot of times we offer them a ton of stop this, start this, stop doing this, start doing this, and we just are giving them new laws to follow. As if, it has, as if their union with Jesus has nothing to do with it. Like we're, we're just calling them, do this, stop this. But Paul, he tells people, do this, stop this. But he, as he does, he's saying, because, do these things or stop doing these things because you're united with him. Because you've been linked with him. That's why you live this way. Because you've been made into a new person. And we need to do this. I struggled so much as a teenager with, with certain sins in my life where I was just trying to follow new laws. I just had people, and I loved them to death, and they, they were not seeking to mislead me, but what, or maybe I even misremember it. I don't know, but I felt like I was told, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Start doing this. You better start doing this. You better start doing this. And I would rarely have people point me, lift my eyes back up, say, because you've been linked with Jesus, because you've been saved, start doing this. Because you're linked with him, stop doing this. It grieves his heart. But we need with young believers to point them back up over and over again to their identity in Jesus, not just giving them a new law to follow. I want to give you a couple examples in the time that remains of some specific examples of how our identity with Jesus can have bearing on how we live, how, how it ought to affect the way that we live. Uh, one th- hopefully it will help you see where the rubber meets the road. The first one that I want to talk about for a moment is the realm of sexuality. Now, this is a huge issue in the life of middle adolescence, right? When you're in that early high school period. And note in verse 5 of chapter 3 here, this is the first thing Paul mentions when he, starts, when he turns that corner and starts saying how to live. Sexuality is the first thing that he mentions for many teenagers, many adults even, but it, it begins often in these adolescent years, these struggles against sin. And I would note first that the temptation towards sin is not an indication that they're not born again right he's saying that there's things even the people who he says are linked with Jesus he says there's some things that are earthly in you still there's some things that remain that you need to put to death that you need to to get rid of in your life but he in calling them to obey in the realm of sexuality he's he's wanting them to lift their eyes to heaven 
to not just look around at the world and think about the experiences and the, the impulses and the things I'm called to do or to delight in by the world, but that I'm to look to heaven. And if you can help a young person lift their eyes to heaven, use the language Paul uses here, like set their minds on things above, seek the things that are above, guess what they see when they look into heaven? They see a Savior who died for those sins. Like they, they, see, uh, they see how ugly those sins are, even if they feel appealing to them. They see, man, these sins I'm drawn to necessitated the suffering and death of Jesus in my place. And they may forget that if they're just looking down at the earth, but if you lift their eyes to heaven, you will help them to see, like what Paul says in another letter, that they were bought with a price by Christ. And they're to honor God with their bodies, the bodies that were bought by Jesus himself. So we need, even in the realm of sexuality, to lift their eyes to the heavens and to see Jesus who died for those very things that they're drawn to. In the area of relationships, friendships, and how they relate to people, we need to lift their eyes to heaven. Teenagers are going to become increasingly aware of their, the ways they are mistreated by other people, right? And they're going to need to have ability to forgive and to show grace to people. If you look down at verse 13, Paul says that we need to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, note this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If a young person is just looking around at the offenses that are done to them, they're just going to want to strike back. They're going to get back at the people. But if you can lift their eyes to heaven, if you can point them back up to Jesus, they're going to remember they've been the recipient of forgiveness. That they've offended him, but he's forgiven them. He's shown grace and mercy to them. And if you can lift their eyes up to see the way he's relating to them, then you can help them actually relate to the people who've wronged them. That they can show grace to them and mercy to them and forgiveness to them. I think about the realm and thinking of practicalities where the rubber meets the road. I think of the area of engagement with the church. That identity of being united with Jesus has huge significance in the life of a young person for how they engage with the people of God. That if, you, if all they do is set, keep their eyes down on the things of earth, they might look around us as great as we think we are as a church family. They might think, why would I spend time with these people? Like there's so much more fun, cool, whatever things I could be doing if they're all just looking down around the world. But if you lift their eyes to heaven, if you help them set their minds on things above, guess what they're going to see when they look up into heaven? They're going to see it's not just me and Jesus. It's not that Jesus just has eyes for me, so to speak. Valentine's Day is coming up next Sunday, by the way, as a heads up. It's not just that Jesus has eyes for me, but that Jesus has eyes for us. Jesus has eyes for these people, the ones I may think are weird or that are much older than me or that seem strange or different categories than me and might label themselves in all sorts of other different identity categories as me. Jesus loves these people. I need to love these people. And may I appeal to the parents in the room, may I appeal to you with all my heart as someone who loves the young people of our church, do not let the teenage years of your children be ones where you let them drift away from the people of God. It happens all the time. It's like they come to a point of faith and we think, man, yes, they said a prayer, they received Christ, and then it's like we don't care anymore if they're worshiping with us, if they're spending time with their peers in the church. 
And then they drift away. Their affinities become more and more with my team or my club or my neighbors. They need, if they're lifting their eyes up to heaven, they're going to see these people right here are the people I need to learn to love. These are the people I need to learn to serve and be served by. Even if they seem weird and crazy and strange to me, these people are loved by Jesus. So lift their eyes up to heaven so that they see the church the right way. One other realm, there's others I can mention, but it's the realm of suffering and how important it is for teenagers to have a grounding of their identity being united with Jesus because suffering, if it hasn't come to a teenager by this point in time, it's about to. And they need to know that they're going to face suffering. They're going to face difficulties in life. And if they, if they just keep their gaze down at the things of earth and look around at the trials that come to them and the, the sicknesses that come to them, the, the things they don't receive that they long for, they're going to become jaded. They're going to become angry. They're going to become confused. They're going to become disillusioned, despairing. But if we can lift their eyes up to heaven we can help them set their minds on the things that are above, guess what they're going to see in heaven? They're going to see a Savior who suffered. They're going to see a Savior who suffered for them. And they're going to see a Savior who said, I am with you in your suffering. I'm not absent from it. I'm with you as you're walking through these things. Remember, I'm bound with you. And so we need to lift our children, our, our young believing children's eyes up to Jesus to see the one who has suffered, to know they're not immune from suffering, they're not exempt from suffering, but that Christ is with them in their suffering. And friends, I want you to note from verse 4, and then I'll close, that if we can lift our children, the believing children's eyes up to heaven, to look there, to set their minds there, guess what someday they're going to see? They're going to see Christ, their life, appear that someday he's going to return someday the resurrected jesus is going to return to this earth maybe it'll be in the lifetime of our children they'll see it with their own eyes from earth but that is something that that children need to know is to not just live for the here and now not just live for the things of this earth but to look to heaven because someday jesus is going to return someday he's going to set up his kingdom and set up a new earth that they're going to be part of forever I told Pastor Larry I was going to steal his phrase that he says often to close the sermon, uh, and so I will. I love how he has often said, and has been instructive to me, he, uh, even in thinking of this sermon, uh, he says this simple phrase, to remember whose you are. I love that. Uh, because in thinking of this, we're just turning them inside to themselves to like be puffed up with their own identity, but that very phrase cuts through a lot and says, just by adding two letters, remember whose you are, is reminding them that they, if they're trusting in Christ, they've been bound with someone far greater than themselves. Someone who can give them an identity that will never shift, that will never dissolve, that they are securely loved by God once and for all. So may we help them remember whose they are, and may we remember that ourselves. Amen? I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing another song before we are dismissed. But let's pray to our Heavenly Father. Father in heaven, Thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder and the, even the lifting of our eyes up to heaven this morning. To remember that the one who came to this earth and died for us on the cross and who was raised for us is now with you who's sitting at your right hand. That that is literally what is true in heaven right now. 
And we are bound up in that. May we revel in that. May we delight in that. May that give such encouragement to our hearts and souls to know that our life is wholly bound to his. Father, I pray that we may know our identity as sons and daughters of God more and more and more and that we may help those coming behind us in time to know theirs as well. Father, we pray that you'd be honored in what we sing now. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.